Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Hi, you two. Good to see you as always, but especially good to see you today because I believe one of us has uh, some news to share. I'm gonna just going to put her right on the spot. Let's just rip the Band-Aid off. Sarah, what's happening? We are leaving our beloved Holy Spirit to go to a wonderful church in Nashville, Tennessee. St. Bartholomew's also seems to be called St. Bees a lot. Um, Not St. Bart's, St. Bees. Yeah, St. Bees. Uh, yeah, we're super excited. You know, we've had other people call Josh and have him look at churches and it's never felt like the right fit. And this was like, it it hasn't felt the right fit in a way that I thought like, I don't know if it'll ever be clear. And this was like super, super clear with these people. It's the best. So yeah, wow. it, it is like incredible. We're so excited. Yay. Yeah. And it's so great. Yesterday, our house fell through that we were going to buy. So we're oh, back in the market perfect. in Nashville, which great. is terrifying. Um, yeah, all right, we're doing all right listeners. Let's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> do you have any rental property in Nashville we can use? Um, our, uh, our kids are doing okay. We told them last night. And for me, that was like the hardest tell for, for sure. Course. Just because... For normal reasons, and we've had to tell them really hard news before. So, um, mm. you know, that was uh, that was tough. Um, Neil just wants to make sure that his National Honor Society membership transfers. Um, <laughs> that was Prior- his main priorities. question. Yeah. That was not a concern my son, my son's had. And then me <laughs> either. I definitely yeah, didn't better have that kids concern. Than I do. You're better when I was Neil's yeah. age, I was like, whose older sibling can get me cigarettes? You know, um, <laughs> I wasn't worried about National Honor Society. Um <laughs> But yeah, but Annie, you know, Annie had a really hard time. She's little, she's in third grade. So we're just kind of trying to be present to her and, um, and love on her a lot. So, and praying yeah. that there's a cheer squad. Is that, that's that the prayer? Yeah. So she's the very prayer focused on... is that there's a cheer squad, uh, wherever Annie goes to school. Cause she I really like loves a strong possibility. I feel like. I, yeah, Nashville, I do too. Right? I do too. We need yeah. it to be like a low key cheer squad. As <laughs> like, it's like a perfectly pitched cheer squad. She has my like Popeye's wife olive oil genetics. And so we're not really made for like real cheerleading. We like like low key cheerleading. So that's what we're I hoping see. for. I got yeah. it. Well, RJ, any th- Sarah, what a, what wonderful news! I mean, yeah. it's it's I'm I'm, awesome. I'm I'm sad Dave, for Houston. You saw the church, and you yes. said this reminds me of Holy Spirit. Yeah, I had the privilege of speaking there um, when Seculosity came out and spending time with the the guy who's the rector there right now, his wonderful friend, Sammy Wood. And he, um, my um, initial impression was it was uh, obviously a lo- lovely, lovely group of people and large, um, but also that like, like architecturally, it felt yeah. very similar yeah. to Holy Spirit in Houston where yeah. Sarah and Josh are. So, I mean, it's a loss clearly for, for Texas, but I'm so excited. I mean, Nashville's a fun place to visit. That's for sure. 
you know, if death has taught me anything is that we just don't, we have these magical moments in ministry and, and they're truly like just soaked with the Holy spirit and you don't get to hold on to them. And if you try to, things get dangerous quick. They just kind of slide through your fingers like water. And we're so grateful that like we have had that at Holy Spirit. And we just pray that we would have, you know, similar moments of, of, of anointment and of the Holy Spirit and God's present presence, you know, in the next place we go, but you don't get to hold on to it. You know, like that's the thing with what we do. Yeah. It's more like undulating waves yeah. and things like that. And you kind of can't really ever pin it down. No. At least that's what I've seen in the last 20 years. As someone who moved a lot as a kid and especially right at Neil's age and at Andy's age, in fact, mm. my heart goes out to them, but I also yeah. am grateful. It felt like it was it was always scary. I don't think kids ever want to move, but no. Um, and ten years is a good long run too. Like they they've really had a home and they're going to have another home. And yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's the hope, you know. Right? Is that the next place feels like home to them too? And I'm from Nashville. I was born there. Yeah. You know, I was baptized in a um, an Episcopal church plant in a uh, elementary school cafeteria um, in awesome. Nashville, Tennessee. So. There's a really, my godmother still lives there. There's a really beautiful sense that we're also able to give the kids of like, this is where your grandparents, Mm. my mom always said she was her happiest in Nashville, Tennessee. So. And now you can spend more time in Mississippi. I know because we're so (laughs) close to Oxford. I mean, I'm excited. And we're close to Dollywood. I mean, you want to talk about God's perfect timing, you know? Mm. So. Mm. Well, RJ, I know you don't need to match that, but any anything to I share? Can't match I can't that. He can't. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. can't. I can't. Yes. Well, what's going on with you? You have just come through, as we all have. Holy week. Easter. Yeah. Holy week. Easter? Yeah. So I'm a combination of like excited and just sort of proud and because um, we had an amazing Easter, an amazing Holy Week, and I just love, I love, love, love my church and... Hmm. All these little miracles happened, you know, like my wife was sitting, she takes like the worst seats in church because they're right next to the air conditioner air intake, which means it drowns out any sounds that Marshall may make during the service. And she kind of likes hiding over there. And she saw this kind of um, young man in his early 30s kind of wandering around looking for a seat by himself. And she had an extra seat. So she said, hey, why don't you come over and sit down next to me? And um, he turns to her and says, are you uh, Jackson and Spencer's mom? And she goes, yeah. She goes, I'm Jack Cutler. I I, uh, knew you guys 15 years ago, and I did New York City. I did Focus in New York City, and I think I actually gave your sons, like, a couple tennis lessons one summer. And he's now in his early 30s and living here in West Palm. I had no idea. I haven't seen him in, like, forever. But he came to Mm. church on Easter, and it just uh, was such a wonderful little moment among others. And at the same time, I'm totally exhausted. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, in ministry, it's, it, gosh, it's such a joy, but it also just never ends. You know, we get like two funerals in the next week, like oh, five baptisms, confirmation yeah. in 10 days. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just like, woohoo, we're going to the Super Bowl. Okay, now back to the trenches. I mean, <laughs> you know, especially to, to, as like a rector, it's just like, that's whenever, you know, whenever he's like, it is relentless. Be a rector, Sarah, when are you going to be a rector? I'm like, um, oh I've seen the relentlessness of that schedule. <laughs> and um, it I never so. ends. Yeah. 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 Well, so I'm glad I love it. Went it. Well, though, I love it. it. I'm sorry. I'm glad it went well. I saw some pictures. I, it I went think it's, so great. 
It you know, I think so we're going to talk about it at the end. I want to talk a little bit about the content of Easter, the meaning of Easter. But we, we too, at our, you know, we're still, you know, so sick of. I'm so sick of talking about post-pandemic stuff. But you know, this, uh, we, we're sort of surf, surfing one of those waves that you just mentioned, Sarah. Yeah. And like, uh, it's a high water mark. And surprisingly, like I thought. Um, there's like been almost an explosion of interest, let's just say, in attendance in our church. And despite all of the narratives that you read about, um, we had a record-setting Easter and um, just full of joy. Awesome. And it wasn't, it didn't, it, it didn't feel culturally mandated or something. It felt there was a really a uh, 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 Holy Spirit is what it felt like here. It, it, it didn't like hurt that it was also like 68 degrees and sunny. Like there yeah. was yes. that, that really helped. But um, yeah, it's nice to, um, at least you, when you go to the Super Bowl, at least it was nice to have some people in the seats. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, and we're, we're experiencing something similar and it feels awkward to talk about, but I feel like I talked to other friends of mine who are in churches as well. And it, they're kind of, a, yeah, there's a bit of, I don't know, the good things are happening. It's People encouraging, are, yeah, actually. Yeah, it definitely feels like <laughs> I was sitting in church on Easter. Maybe it's not the end of Christianity. Maybe you know, not. I was sitting in church on Easter and I was like looking at, you know, we've just had a lot, there was, of course, a lot of people I didn't know there, but that there were a lot of people who have like joined in the past six months. And I was like, are we stupid to leave? You know, like that was like in the back of my head. But it is like, it's, it's encouraging to see in the face of, of so much um, bad news about the church. It's encouraging to see that, that there is growth happening Um, and that people do, they're longing for this. Like they're wanting to come back. They're wanting community. Uh, Again, the, the temptation to hold it tightly is very, yeah. very strong or to yes. take credit for it yeah. or to try to replicate it or yeah. to try to, um, and instead of sort of celebrate it and kind of just see what you can do, if anything, to f- continue to facilitate it. Um, I'm just, because it's, it's, it's cool. holding on to power when we try to hold on to those numbers, yeah. it's holding on to power on some level. And I, I, you know, that's what is so interesting to me is like, Sometimes we see that in certain institutions and it, it just becomes so dark so fast as opposed to like, this is God's, this is of God's and, you know, and we will have it for as long as God gives it to us. And, you and know, have the freedom and joy and faith to still like try new things, take risks, be, be willing totally. to fail. You know what I mean? Not like totally. I just, I've been thinking, you know, remember Naomi Osaka, the tennis player, you know, she, she had to take a break because she, she started to say, you know, she, she won the U.S. Open and she was like number one in the world. But something happened where she came to a place where like winning was, wasn't a joy, it was a relief. Yeah. And like, that just sounds awful, but that, that can happen. You know, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So, anyway. And amidst all the all the incredibly intense stories of clergy burnout and sadness and yes. just sort of bailing, um, you know, to have a time where you can stop and say, you know, hey, it is relentless, it is extremely demanding, but but gosh, it's nice to be a, to be appreciated and to see yes. people respond and to yes. not really necessarily feel like it's, you know, I feel like we're doing the same thing we were doing two years ago when the bottom dropped out, you know? It's like... yeah. Uh, it, we're not in control of b- 
basically anything. I mean, that's really what you get down to. I mean, I mean, I still haven't brushed my teeth, so <laughs> I'm definitely not in control. My dog hasn't had virtual. breakfast yet, and it's you know 1 p.m. So well, uh, speaking of control and uh, our very conflicted relationship with it. I don't know if you've watched this yet. I haven't. My my wife has, and she told me I needed to beeline to it. But it's a new series, a new show called Beef. And it stars Stephen Yen, from, who people might know as Glenn from The Walking Dead, and Ali Wong, the comedian. And it's all about road rage. It's 10 episodes on Netflix, and it's about road rage. Or it's about an incident of road rage that escalates into kind of a full-fledged war between these two people. And um, it provides the backdrop for people talking about road rage. Now, this was on my mind because two days ago, I was with my son and I was taking him to, I think, like baseball practice. And there was an incident of road rage that we observed right in front of us where some two young kids in a truck were trying to pass some older gentleman. And then he did a brake check on them. They stopped and, and he, they put laid on the horn. He got out. They started getting in each other's faces. And my son has never seen anything like this. And was just like, what is that? And I said, son, that is called road rage. Yeah. Both of those people have had a terrible day. Um, and especially <laughs> the one... Uh, maybe life. Was, <laughs> maybe life. And um, just thinking about it in terms of like, it's something I think we all, if you bring up road rage at a party or within a group, almost everyone's got some story like that from the yeah. last couple of years or last couple of weeks. And I I had, I, you know, just catch me in the wrong mood and, you know, it, it's, it's not good in the car, but... Uh, so that I, that got me thinking uh, about road rage, and um, this is how the uh, the show was formed. Uh, how it, how where it began? It says it all began at a stoplight in Hollywood a few years ago. Lee Sung Jin took a few seconds to start moving when the light turned green. The driver behind him responded with disproportionate rage, honking and cursing maniacally. So Lee decided to follow him across town and on to the I-10 which happened to be the direction he was going anyway. I justified it by saying, I'm just going to commute home, Lee recalled. He must have thought, oh, this lunatic is following me for the whole run of the highway. That's what made me chuckle in my mind. You never know what someone else is going through or what the true nature of their internal state is. Then he describes the show, Beef, which begins in a parking lot of like Target or something in California, where a young guy named Danny, who's a struggling contractor who sort of fails at everything, nearly backs his beat-up pickup truck into a white Mercedes SUV driven by Amy, who's played by Ali Wong, who is a tensely coiled entrepreneur who has a seemingly perfect life. Anyway, Amy uh, honks at him and flicks him off. And the showdown triggers a mutual quest for revenge that spirals out of control and ultimately reveals how much Amy and Danny actually have in common despite their ferocious antipathy for one another. Uh, Lee Sung Jin, who's the uh, showrunner, he said, At the core, whether they know it or not, they're both struggling with the same thing, which is this existential void that feels unfillable. Um, And then Yen, the actor, was quoted saying, I'm conscious of the idea that when I'm mad at someone, all the projections I put on that person are a weird reflection back at myself. And that's what usually stops me from engaging further. I'm like, oh, I'm just telling on myself here. 
So he goes on to list Danny's frustrations. You know, he's a guy in his 30s who's living paycheck to paycheck, who lives in a rundown apartment, taking care of his sort of deadbeat brother. He still holds a torch for his high school girlfriend and has strayed from the church that once provided guidance. By the way, the Korean church plays a big role in this and actually a really redemptive and cool role. And so Glenn from The Walking Dead uh, plays a full-on worship song. It turns out he was a worship leader, Stephen Yen was. And it's sort of that both of these guys, all they all go to church and um but they all have sort of complicated relationships first generation Mm -hmm. all that stuff Mm -hmm. and um yen says danny's really trapped in this narrative that everyone's out to get him the last straw is this white mercedes honking at him for an abnormally long time flicking him off for doing nothing wong's amy's more successful by every conceivable metric she's married to the doting george has an adorable daughter lives in a pristine minimalist home and has built her chic plant shop into a major lifestyle brand but she carries profound but unexpressed resentment over being the family breadwinner while also shouldering much of the parenting burden. She's stuck in a maze of her own creation, said Wong. Um, anyway, uh, I want to go on to say another thing, but road rage. What do you see is happening? Have you ever been involved in road rage? Where do you take this? I always I always use road rage as little throwaway lines in sermons because it seems so ubiquitous. Um, it we reveal something about ourselves in these moments, as 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 Yen says, I, I I am telling on myself. But road rage, go. I mean, road rage for me is a little bit like social media, where if someone's gonna be like really aggressive, I'm just gonna respond with like incredible positivity like annoying amounts so for example yesterday um there's a lot of road work being done i'm sitting in my car it's not moving very quickly i'm in no hurry so i literally just pull out my sushi from the grocery store put it on the console beside me i've got all chopsticks like i'm dipping in the soy sauce like we're just sitting there you know and this lady comes from behind and she's trying to get into the lane right Mm -hmm. um because the lane's closed off further up ahead and i don't realize that like it's me she's waiting on right i'm in little tokyo (laughs) in a highlander and finally she like honks her horn and like is like yelling at me and like making all these hand gestures and i just give her the biggest smile and wave and just like let her on in. And that's what I do every time. I just respond with like enormously like obnoxious like kindness. Cause I just sanctified. Yeah, are you keeping calls on their head? No, it's like aggressive <laughs> kindness though. Do you know what I mean? Cause it's like you don't, I can't go there with you, but I'll just be like obnoxiously keeping nice. burning coals. Yeah. Upon their head. Well, that's, Pretty I think much. that's, that's actually. What else are you going to do? Otherwise, it just escalates, right? I mean, but it might escalate regardless. Yeah. Um, Well, it's also like, I would say it feels pretty unsafe to me, as especially as a woman. Like, I'm just like, I'm not going to get in like a back and forth, like road ragey thing. Like, no, thank you. And I typically think more, I mean, I typically think more of this as being like men um, Mm. than women. Uh, But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. There's the Elaine Bennises of the world, I think. I've, I've definitely, uh, no, my wife is more prone to it than I am. But uh, what are you about to say, RJ? I will say, I do, I do like, I like to drive. I like cars. I've got kind of, kind of a car you thing. You do, you're and like I, a car And I like car. to drive kind, I would not say unsafely, but I do kind of like to drive a little aggressively. I always use my blinker and I always check my blind spot. 
But people will tell me they'll be but like, you will tailgate you. <laughs> I'm sorry. You will tailgate the person in front of you. Yeah. No, I won't. I don't like. I don't like to get too. No, hopefully not. But uh, whenever someone tells me, they're like, oh, RJ, I saw you driving the other day. I'm like, oh, did I cut you off? I'm so sorry. And they're like, no, you didn't. I'm like, okay, good. But I will. I will never put any Christian symbolism on the back of my car because I don't want anyone cursing Jesus um, on my nice. account. Yeah. Now that being said. Um, my son, Marshall, you know, and little kids ask the greatest questions. He's like, Dad, he's like, who do you ju- who's your least favorite person in the world? Who do you just hate? And I had to think about it. I was like, you know, Marshall, I'm going to have to say um, vehicular vigilantes, you know, people who take it upon themselves to enforce uh, what their interpretation of traffic rules. Interesting. And uh, yeah, and the, the one example I remember was I used to live in Western Pennsylvania, and if you've ever driven on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, then you'll know that there's about ten spots where the entire highway will go down to a single lane for about ten miles, and yet no actual road work is ever taking place. Mm. So it drives me completely insane. Mm. And the other thing about Western Pennsylvania, and I, I this is not a criticism, but I've, I've found this to be true. If there's a sign on the highway that says, um, you know, they're going to one lane in three miles, everyone immediately gets in that lane and will wait in that lane for, for those three miles, even though the other lane's completely open. So me being a good New Yorker and trying to be as efficient as possible, I will just fly down those three miles and merge the last possible moment. Um, well, there was one time a tractor trailer uh, took it upon himself to pull into the lane and block me, yeah. and uh, and it just it drove me completely insane. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. so you're not immune. Yeah, I, you're not immune. <laughs> I'm totally not immune from road. But I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Let me just drive. And then yeah, that was that was not my not my finest hour. But vehicular vigilantes are my least favorite people in the well, world. Well, it's what it's so. what it what it is is that. And what the show apparently illustrates beautifully is that it's the it's the pin that pricks the balloon that's you know fit to bursting. You know, it's the road rage doesn't come out of nowhere. It's um, it's people sort of not being able to take one more second of inconvenience or difficulty or struggle. And I I can relate to that, even though it's not my go to to express it in a car, but I think there are other ways in which, you know, you, you snap at a loved one because it's just one last thing. And I was, I, I do think, um, in a large sense, you know, one of the things you say to people who are, who are trying to tailgate you is like, you know, what, where are you going in such a hurry? What, what on earth is so important? And I was reading another article this week about the history of exhaustion in the New Yorker. And uh, it's written by this French guy who said basically that the human race is is quite simply that, a race. And that it, it seems mm-hmm. to be a race that's getting faster. And in a lot of sense, like that that would be played out with our vehicles in traffic. And then there'd be less and less margin of error for people to going to get where they think they need to go is very telling. Uh, but there's another aspect of this that I think is interesting, too. Um, uh, the showrunner, uh, Lee Sung Jin, said his own road rage incident involved a middle-aged white man. But he'd originally, in, and, uh, and so he'd originally envisioned ca- casting Stephen Yeun's character clashing with a sort of a Stanley Tucci type. Mm. But having two Asian American leads, which is very rare, as you people know, allowed the story to unfold in ways that wouldn't have been possible in a show about vehicular confrontation with a white man, said Lee. 
It doesn't remove the race card, but it pivots it in a very interesting way and opened it up. And it allowed me to home in, hone in on the main existential themes while letting the specificities of these people start to organically bring up some Asian American identity issues. Ali Wong went on to say, when you have a predominantly Asian American cast, which is very rare, all the people get to be people. So when you reference who your favorite character is, you won't say, oh, it's the Asian one. Mm. Um, Which I thought, you know, there's a raging debate about representation in in media. And I think there's lots of pros and cons to it. But every time you turn on a, you know, I remember seeing a a joke about... um, a gravestone that said white families in commercials like they died in 2012 you know every 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 couple's an interracial couple and every it's always like you know the there was a, uh, if you're if I went to a, a private school where any time two kids of different race were together like the photographer was just right there you know right in yeah. your face <laughs> and uh can't you know creating a basically a false impression of the school but you know I understood what they were doing they want people to uh, they want more diversity and so they need to show more diversity and people who who never see themselves represented, I think it's 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 very. I've heard that it's extremely powerful to see yourself represented. On the other hand, what what Ali Wong is saying is that when you have a sort of a monochromatic um, cast, you allow the people to be people. So you're not playing out racial dynamics; you're playing out existential ones, which I thought was very interesting because it meant that she was she's tired of having to stand be a stand-in for all Asian Americans in everything she's doing, and instead she's she's playing up. She's a rich woman entrepreneur who's tightly coiled and about to lose her SHIT all over the place. But I, you know, we you rarely see sort of an argument against representation. Um, uh, I mean, the argument against representation would usually just be that it, you're trying to represent reality rather than some, you know, fantasy about how people interact. But I don't know. Does that does that strike you guys as anything? Uh, I mean, I think it's great. I you know, it, it's I love to listen to interviews with um, actors and actresses, and I it's fascinating to me when they especially when they're not white, when they talk about how they want to get beyond just telling the same stories, right, about their culture, but perhaps be able to tell real stories about their lives that certainly their culture would impact. Um, but, I mean, I think it's it's awesome. Like, and Ali Wong is great. And, you know, I, there's a part of me that's like, well, this is a little bit of reparations because it's like for for forever, it's just been like a giant white wall of white people on shows. And so how incredible is it that there would be like a whole Asian cast like that? That's awesome. Like and that they're not talking about, you know, um, really stereotypical things. They're talking about these universal things. Um, they're telling universal stories. So I think it's great. Mm, yeah. And they're yeah. able to because if you get unencumbered from the racial dynamics, then you can, they can actually tell a a human story within this context rather than having to uh, negotiate, uh, reconcile all sorts of different contexts to one another. Right. Um, What do you think, Arch? Anything? I was just thinking about the pressure that comes with feeling like you have to individually represent a whole group of people, you know, and how I actually, I, I feel like that sometimes when I'm in contexts where I feel like, I might be the only Christian or certainly the only pastor or something, and people may have preconceived notions about what that means. 
um, I feel like I need, okay, you know, I gotta, gotta put my best foot forward for Jesus, you know, be as, be as kind and as real and as relatable and as funny and as winsome and as curious as I possibly can, because I just, you know, people already think Christians are kind of a-holes, and I don't just want to, um, you know, uh, confirm their bias, <laughs> so, which so part of me doesn't mind yourself. doing. Exactly, don't be myself. <laughs> Part of me doesn't mind, and part of me, you know, that's not something I want to do all the time. It gets very exhausting. Those shows are so lame, though, where it's like a rainbow cast of characters. You're just like, okay, these people are not friends in real life. Like, I don't care. Like, I love that everyone in here is Asian because, like, people tend to self-segregate on some level, generally speaking. And I just get really frustrated when it's like a show about... I don't get really frustrated, but it, it is annoying to me, right? That it's like, remember how in the 80s there was like this thing where people, the adoption movie was happening in the United States, and it was like people were like, I'm going to adopt a child of every color. And mm. like for me, that's what those tell me. Angelina Jolie. Like. Yeah, it's like, okay, but these are people, and like they They're have people. interesting yeah. stories, and like what are we doing? I don't well, know. Well, the question is, 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 does art exist to represent reality accurately or to 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 paint a sort of fantasy picture uh, yes. uh, or an aspirational picture or a beautiful picture and right, i think yeah. art, art can do both but i think you're yeah. right sometimes it's like this stunt this casting just is just distracting and 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 that kind of representation i think is just uh what, what does they call it tokenism or it's just uh yeah it's just yeah. it doesn't serve anything yeah. it ends up just sort of being an end in itself and a kind of hey look at how virtuous we are um, that's why one reason so. why it's it's kind of uh, refreshing to watch Succession, which is uh, you know a bunch of extremely depraved but um, all of the same race <laughs> people, <laughs> a family. You could tell stories about family, and uh, I was just watching Succession last night, and it um, they uh, something about that show is trying to not paint a flattering picture or a fantasy picture of how people are but a, a pro- might might you always say a darker picture of how folks are if you guys do you guys watch that yeah, show you no do? that's like i watched like the, the first episode or two uh-uh. yeah, you watch what the what, you watch watch what white lotus is fine but succession white lotus is awesome i can't is it i thought it was dark is it not dark succession. it's super dark yes but okay. it's like but like it's dark but like in Hawaii, like it's dark, okay. but it's beautiful. Yeah. Like I can't, yeah, okay. no, I can't Good. do, I don't know. It's too, it's too, it also just feels so detached from the world that I've inhabited. Like I, I wonder if it's more interesting to men succession. Mm. I wonder if it's more interesting to like maybe guys who grew up on the East coast. Cause I watch it and I'm just like, well, okay. Like mm. this doesn't, I don't know. It just doesn't do it. I know, for me I know at a all. lot of women who are obsessed with that show, I, but it's not, it me. is, um, but the reason I bring Succession up is because uh, it's a bunch of very miserable, extremely miserable, uh, wealthy people. It leads into this next uh, article called Money May Buy Happiness But Not As Much As You Think by Michael Mechanic in The Atlantic. Michael the Mechanics? No, this no, sort of relates to what Sarah and I have, do for a living. Surveyed in 1969, freshmen entering four-year colleges were most interested. They did a, They always did a survey at UCLA. We're most interested in, quote, developing a meaningful philosophy of life. That was 85% considered that essential. Uh, Secondly, raising a family, 73%. And, quote, helping others who are in difficulty, 69%. Ten years later, 1979, freshmen opted for, quote, being an authority in my field, 74%, followed by helping others and raising a family. 
By 1989, a new priority had taken over the survey's top position and has appeared there on and off ever since. What do you think it is, Sarah Condon? Money. Money. Indeed, the number one goal of the class of 2023, deemed essential or very important by more than four in five students, was, quote, being very well off financially. Grown-ups can relate. Recent polling from the Wall Street Journal and the University of Chicago points to a steep decline over the past quarter century in the percentage of American adults who view patriotism, religion, parenting, and community involvement as, quote, very important. The only priority tested whose perceived importance grew during that period was money. Now, do you guys remember a few years ago we talked about uh, the kind of the, the book called Jackpot? Um well, I'll refresh you. In 2010, the study came out that on average, the more money people earned, the higher they scored on self-reported measures of well-being, but only up to a point. The happiness effect hit a plateau or satiation point at incomes of 60000 to $90,000. Well, then a new study came out a few weeks ago. Uh, then said that well-being indeed hit a ceiling as income rose, but only among the 15% of subjects who were least happy to begin with. The happier ones kept getting happier, the authors found. In fact, among the happiest 30%, the effect accelerated. More money meant even more happiness. At least that's how the media reported the story. But the paper itself, the study itself, includes all sorts of caveats that went unmentioned. The authors noted that the association of income and happiness is weak, even if statistically robust. They point out that the quadrupling of a person's income had an effect on well-being roughly equal to the mood boost of a weekend and less than a third as large as the negative effect of a headache. The authors explained that the difference between happiness of household incomes of $15,000 and $250,000 is about five points on a 100-point scale. In other words, basically nothing. Then it goes on to say, Boston area psychologist Bob Kenny spends much of his time assuaging the wealth-related anxieties of his extremely well-heeled clients and their offspring. Comprehensive data on the emotional well-being of America's 0.1% are non-existent. Anecdotally, though, Kenny thinks his clients may be at a slight disadvantage on the happiness front. I'm not comparing them to people who don't have enough money to put food on the table, but most people believe that even if life isn't very good right now, I'm going to make a whole lot more money and then life's going to be better. Wouldn't it make things better if I had that house on the ocean, if I just had something? His clients have more money than they know what to do with, so they no longer cling to that fallacy. I say to people all the time, look, retail therapy works, but so does cocaine. The problem is it wears off. When you go out and buy something and it's new and it's pretty, the latest iPhone or the Tesla, God, this is great. It just isn't sustainable. Not that you don't have enough money, but that it'll lose its kick, so you buy another one. I know a guy who bought three. iPhones, I asked? Teslas, Kenny said. And you would, and you would not meet him and think, God, that is one happy guy. <laughs> <laughs> money awkward subject americans hate talking about money um i uh, love talking about money i think uh, um yeah, i'll talk about money all day <laughs> well caitlin Beatty, who was talking about uh who's speaking at our conference in new york yeah. uh, coming up and she she wrote something about uh, you know, christians talk so much about modesty in terms of dress but uh mm -hmm. if you look at the new testament stuff it's all about basically modesty of displays of wealth 
<laughs> that's so interesting. And that's actually the purity codes or the sort of modesty stuff. I thought that was very interesting. But Sarah, you, you want to talk about money? Break us in. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make you happier. Uh, it doesn't make you happier. And we know this in the church really intimately is that we know people who make $15,000. And then we know people who make $200,000. And they don't seem that much happier. Like, I think that's like the real gift of, of sometimes of ministry to us personally is like, we, we see the curtain pulled back in a way that the world doesn't. And, um, and even honestly, just the practice of that means that sometimes when I'm around people who, you know, have the new stuff or have the expensive stuff, like there's like signs I'll see that I'll be like, Oh, like, I don't, I don't know if you're totally happy. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, my, mm. I mean, yeah, I wasn't raised in a culture with money and like, I certainly don't come from families that had a lot of money. And so it's always surprising to me that we think that money will make us happier. I don't know. It is because that's certainly not that certainly wasn't true for like my grandmothers. That wasn't true for my great grandmother. You know, I, so I, why would it be true now that that money would make us happy? And I don't have college students that I feel like are fixated on money. I really don't. I think they're eager to find work. I think if they are fixated on money coming out of college, who could blame them in yeah. this economy? You know, um, like that makes sense to me that they would be super worried about it. But I, you know, mine tend to talk about like work-life balance and where are they going to have a community and, and that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I wouldn't say that my, the students I work with are obsessed with money, but they don't, when, when they think about what they want to do with their career, um, the making of money, it's a, it's just a foregone conclusion that that's the most important thing. And that's they're so going to follow it partly because that's sort of set in front of them. And I that's especially among boys. I'll, I'll say it right now. Like it's, yeah, that's, and that's partly because they feel like they're, they're not very welcome in some of the humanities areas anymore. They just go in there and just hear, a, you know, right, rightly or not, they hear just litanies of how terrible the, the crimes of history that they've perpetrated. And I, I but Boy, I Dave, I you went deep with us. <laughs> well, I think that I feel for it. when I see that that money is the only thing that people think is like that, that yeah. that's the only value left. Yeah. I I get really sad and I don't blame the students. I think that sure. all these oh, other yeah. things have failed them. I for think sure. that like they they're they're not being uh, They feel like this is the option. This is the all they got and yeah. yes. They they grew up in a time when, you know, the 2007 2008 hit and a lot of them watched reversals happen and a lot of them have seen people hold a they lot saw more their jobs parents freak out like I, I get that i get that i yeah. also just think it's a very thin view of life to yeah. have um and and then but then again i live in a place where to buy a house even is just so much more expensive than it was five years ago and it feels Same like this girl. escalating yeah. thing that is very hard to go around to rj what are you about to say well that's what i want to say i want to say um Maybe I'm wrong. I feel like there's a small amount of things that most people need to have some sense of satisfaction in their life and security. And one is like a place to live, you know, hopefully that they own, that they can't get kicked out of it at a, at a moment's notice, um, that they could be able to take care of themselves if they get sick, you know, um, and, and that they can take care, of, take care of their kids. 
you know, that provide a good future for their kids. And when you look at those sorts of things and you look at the cost of housing and the cost of health insurance and the cost of college education, it's totally insane. It is. You know, like I, I, I don't, I don't really have it's a like dog very in the fight. Unattainable. It's totally unattainable. Yeah. And so I don't, you know, I don't really have a dog in the fight with the whole college debt forgiveness thing. But it's also true that college now is eighty thousand dollars, and thirty years ago it was ten thousand dollars. Right. You know, and I and I know, um, I know what the budgeted line item at my church for my family health insurance is, and it's completely insane. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about? And medical bills are like the number one source of bankruptcy in this country. Like, God help you if you get cancer or like break a bone, or or anything like that. Um, and then, like I said, Dave, housing has gotten insane. So I, I do wonder if it's a cultural shift. I, I didn't live in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but my sense is it was easier to be a middle-class person in the world. Yes, You know, 100%. you could go to, you could, and you didn't, you didn't necessarily need a college degree. You know, when I lived in, when I went to seminary in Pittsburgh, for example, a guy about my, my age who lived there said, you know, when I was growing up, or, or maybe just a generation a little bit before me, you went to high school, you got out of high school, you went to the steel mill, you got a great, good-paying job with great yeah. benefits. Within eight years, you made, like, manager. You had 10 weeks off a year. You drove a, a Cadillac, you know, and had a great time with your friends. And then that all went away. Yeah. You know, totally went away. So I do wonder um, if the obsession with money has to do with the increasing cost of things that disappear into the middle class. And that, I mean, what did we read a couple of years ago? That it basically now... It's impossible. It's basically beyond the reach of most couples, even if they're both working, to have like a middle class existence. Mm-hmm. Things are just too expensive, you know. So it's yeah. got to give it some but the point. Op- but other I want to be a little bit merciful. Fleischman type stuff that we talked about, and I, I think, you know, I, I just speak for myself because I worry about money all the time, like 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 a lot yes. of people. It's, it's and I wonder myself, what would I worry about if I wasn't worried about money? And the truth is, there Something have else. been a few times where I've, you know, where, where we've, where like when we moved from New York to to Virginia back when it was less expensive. It wasn't the top of my list of worries. However, lots of other things came in to fill that yes. void immediately. Yes, yeah. that's I, right. Trust me. I found things to be unhappy about because it, it, it turned out it wasn't the outside in. It was the inside out. It was a, yes. it was a condition of the heart. And uh, money is an easy thing to, to fixate on as being the source of the, of the problem as well as the answer to it. And I think that what I like about uh, studies like this is it shows that that's not really true and never has been true. At the same time, it it you know you want to be able to put food on the table. But I would say I feel for these younger people. I don't think they've been given a very easy lot in terms of like what they're basically like. Well, if I want to have any shot at having the kind of life I've had, I have to make all this money. And they just don't see it as an option to do elsewhere. I, I also feel like just every institution around them is blown up. Yeah. Like the institution of marriage is blown up. The church institution is blown up. You know, faith in politics and the American political system is blown up. And so it's like the one thing they can hold on to, which is why we all love money, right? It's it control. gives us this sense of security. Sense of security. So, yeah. you know, it's an, it is an interesting article to talk about from the co- perspective of college students. But I do wonder if, you know, if we if we truly had conversations with some people who are very Im- impoverished, like I... I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't live in that world. I don't live in either of those worlds, right? I live somewhere in between. And, and I think what I would say is like, 
you know, it's not, it's not this or Fleischman, yeah. right? There's this beautiful in-between place that the three of us are fortunate enough to live in, um, where we do have all of our basic needs met, you know? Um, and yeah. that's, I just, you know, I, I, I think, um, that the, one of the things that I, I've, I've said it before, and it's one of the gifts of doing ministry in basically an Episcopal church context and having grown up in prep schools is to, is to experience this firsthand. Not only yeah. that money doesn't solve problems, but that people with vast amounts of money are in pain and need the gospel just as much. And that there's yeah. no sort of, um, I think that the world, I just listened to a sermon the other day that I was subjected to where the basic sense was that you the you people with m- money don't suffer. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that's not true. And yeah. and there's an and even if it were true, it's a non-starter in terms of any kind of healing. Was this in an Episcopal church? Yes, of course it was an Episcopal it's also, church. But it's also like you just want to say like, well, then you must not suffer because you're the priest in an Episcopal church. You're probably doing okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's so infuriating to me. Anyway. Well, it's it's a complete ah! non-starter. I'm with, it is. I'm with Mary Carr all the way that the most privileged person in, in this, listening to this podcast, has suffered the tortures of the damned and is in just as much in need of God's grace as the one who doesn't have it. And I, yeah. that people say, oh, the, the, the race is like a kind of being, or, or these people need the law and these people need the gospel. And, right. and uh, we talked about it in terms of like that, conv- you know, convict the comfortable and f- f- comfort the afflicted or f- and f- right. afflict the comfortable. Right. And I just, um, as I get older, the I newspaper in one hand, the Bible in another. It's nonsense. Like everyone yeah. is uncomfortable and everyone needs, everyone is afflicted. And, yeah. um, that's that's yeah. where that's where that's a story, and I'm sticking to it. But I thought we'd also talk today about forgiveness, because you know when we talk about, uh, I think money and forgiveness actually are equated quite frequently in the Bible. Debts being forgiven. Yeah. Um, and Elizabeth Bruenig, uh, who we've talked about quite a bit, she's spent the last year writing about people on death row in Texas, and she writes for a number of different outlets, the New York Times and Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. She gave a talk for The Point, which is a wonderful journal out of Chicago, uh, on the limits of forgiveness. And uh, don't worry, she loves forgiveness. Uh, and she starts out by sort of tracing the history of forgiveness and, 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 and re- references this book called Before Forgiveness, talking about the ancient world. There really wasn't any concept of forgiveness. There was a concept of mercy, where you would uh, cancel the debts of slaves and things like that, or set people free. But forgiveness, where you were rehabilitated to the actual, um, to the actual offender, was just non-present. You don't see it in any of the kind of plays or any kind of accounts from that age. But then she she gets on to talk about a sort of a definition of forgiveness. There's a lot here, so listen uh, closely if you can. The political philosopher Gene Hampton defined mercy this way. Um, Whereas forgiveness is a change of heart towards a wrongdoer that arises out of our decision to see them as morally decent rather than bad, mercy is the suspension of a punishment that would otherwise be deserved as retribution and which is granted out of pity and compassion for the wrongdoer. It's easy to see how mercy, in this sense, constitutes an element of forgiveness, Um, Though Hampton herself points out that the two can exist independently of each other, the example she gives, and I did not know this, you two, is that in Puritan New England, if a criminal was about to be hanged but then repented of his crime, the community would throw him a feast. They would reconcile themselves to him and then hang him. So you, what? 
So you can have forgiveness, forgiveness and no mercy. They can be decoupled. Um, oh my gosh! I just blew. You're Sarah's gonna keep mind. reading after that? Like I need a minute. Okay, tell what me what did that look like? <laughs> I don't know. Did he throw up? Like he was full, and then they hung him? Like I have so many gross questions. It's a, the, 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 you have violated the first use of the law, and you must be punished. Did However, he try to run? God in His did mercy. Did he get to pick out the food? Like it's a. I mean, that's wild. One wonders if that that's really happened. Wild. That one wonders if that really happened. It's her way of trying to say that forgiveness and mercy can be decoupled from one another. Um, I think that's very, very rare. I'll say. <laughs> Have a great feast. You get you get hanged in the morning. You got you got a, you got a few hours. She says, "I am a journalist and not a philosopher." So what I have in mind when I use the term forgiveness is probably less exact than others. But I do feel it has to do with forsaking an emotionally salient set of rights or privileges that one acquires when injured. Now this is interesting. The cases that warrant our forgiveness versus the ones that don't can be somewhat surprising. Consider a pair of more or less recent episodes of publicized forgiveness and their reception. There is the case of Megan Hall, a Tennessee police officer who came to the attention of the internet when she and several members of her small town police department were disciplined for having sexual relationships, some of times on the clock. For her numerous trysts, Hall became a temporary laughingstock online and a stand-in for feminine infidelity at large. Eventually, tabloids learned from colleagues of Hall's husband, Jedediah Hall, (laughs) um, that the man had chosen to forgive his wife and attempt to salvage their marriage rather than leaving her. Then she says, among the comments on that story are the following. One, husband is a real dummy. Two, this woman has completely disrespected him as a man. Get some balls and leave her. You deserve way better. Three. Come on, Jedediah. Three, worst thing he can do at this moment is trying to, quote, work things out with her. And on and on and on. Meanwhile, in Massachusetts, a woman named Lindsay Clancy attacked and killed her three children before jumping from a second floor window in her home. Clancy survived. Her husband, Patrick Clancy, shortly released a statement in which he explicitly forgave his wife and asked the public to do so as well, writing, I want to ask all of you that you find it deep within yourselves to forgive Lindsay as I have. The real Lindsay was generously loving and caring towards everyone, me, our kids, family, friends, and her patients. The very fibers of her soul are loving. All I wish for her now is that she can somehow find peace. Patrick's plea for forgiveness was covered on Good Morning America, which later was uploaded to YouTube, where it received acclaim along the following lines. This is heartbreaking. Mental illness is real, and it can happen to everyone, to us, if not addressed properly. I wish healing and prayers for the family. My condolences. Next, this is such a sad story. I cannot imagine what she will be going through once she recovers from, in this case, uh, postpartum psychosis. Last one. Too sad for words. I can't imagine what she must have been feeling in order to do that. I forgive her because she's going to spend the rest of her life trying to figure out how to forgive herself. Now we're back to Bronig, what she says. She says, what immediately struck me about the contrast between the tenor of the respective receptions of each act of forgiveness was that the far worse offender had evidently been met with far warmer feelings. But it isn't that homicide is easier to forgive than infidelity. It isn't even clear to me that the spectating public is in any position to forgive anything. It's that in the second circumstance, forgiveness itself isn't actually in play. In the Clancy case, the woman who killed her three children is distinguished from, quote, the real Lindsay, the same woman as she was before her mental condition dramatically deteriorated. Her illness is such that her crimes are essentially those of another person. Therefore, she ought not be to be damned for them. Um, 
Let's stop there for a second because she gets into the critics of forgiveness, which is a very, very potent section. Um, I find we, we have such an obsession with, um, you know, the, the, to be forgiven, uh, you have to have maliciously intended to do something. Um, that's the only thing that would warrant forgiveness. Otherwise, it's sort of just you didn't mean to, and therefore you just need to be understood. Um, and I think that one of the powers of forgiveness personally is that you cannot mean to do something but it still need forgiveness. I mean, like if it's still, I mean, that's like half of marriage. You're right. I mean, if, yeah. if we're yeah. only forgiven for the things that we explicitly either apologize for yeah. or, or maliciously uh, did, or maliciously did. Oh, I know yeah. what I'm going to do this morning. It's like, right. it's, what, what do you, what do you think about this? I mean, I think we've talked a lot about how, uh, forgiveness in the, the culture we live in just don't function anymore um how rare it is for uh people to come forward and to to actually seek forgiveness and to actually get it so you know i is an interesting take on this woman i just googled her who um who killed her children um i had not heard that story before and you know it does sound she was in a state of it sounds like just horrible horrible mental health and that she literally heard a voice telling her to do this um and I read she jumped out of a window afterwards and she's actually paralyzed from the waist down now. Oof. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think about, huh, it kind of makes me think of like all the things that line up in a situation where there's great harm and how we often culturally want to pin it on one person. But I would imagine that Lindsay's husband came to this with some softness because he probably recognized that she was not well Mm. and he probably had to leave. Maybe he had to go get diapers, right? Maybe he had to pick up some formula. Um, He probably had to leave and he thought she'll be okay. I'll just leave her for a few minutes. And so, you know, I think about, I mean, honestly, like I think about the situation, I think about Lindsay's parents. I don't know who they are, but like, No one was there to help them. I'm sure they feel a burden of the responsibility. And it does. It makes me think of my parents' accident and how many people had to make bad choices Mm. for them to die. And I think what we love to do, because it's easier and it fuels rage, is to find the one person that we can blame things on and deem them unforgivable. Yeah. When in reality, most of the time when really bad things happen, it's a community effort. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everyone, and everyone, everyone. And, and there's probably, we probably recoil at community forgiveness because, because there's something intrinsically that knows that we've taken part in something like this. Do you know what I mean? Like we've been a part of something bad and big and it. And if we can just, it's always that thing of if we can just accuse people first, then we don't get accused ourselves. Yeah. Um, so that's very that's very powerful rj did she say something in the beginning about you you can forgive when you sort of come to understand that someone is sort of basically good and so you're willing to let go of this thing that they did is that what you said no she was trying to say that forgiveness involves sort of it's an emotional thing that's not just um 
withholding uh, or sort of suspending uh, consequence, but actually blessing letting it go the, the person. Yeah. yeah, the difference between mercy, forgiveness, grace. You know, withholding penalty versus like coming to a sense of reconciliation with someone versus actually blessing them when they don't deserve it. Or you know, they're they're all very much uh, related, but they're um, they get gradually more intense. And I think Sarah's right. Our our, um, our culture gets gradually less and less comfortable with them. The more loving they become, because they seem to be ineffective. It's like how you know. It's the same thing they said to Jesus. Like, how dare you show forgiveness, grace, love to these people who don't deserve it? They'll never shape up. And we need them to shape up mm. now. We need them to get better. We need them to conform with uh, our plan. Um, well, yeah. you have uh, the. She goes through that that for the concept of forgiveness is really. Um, under a lot of criticism from both right and left is for slightly different reasons, but she, she sums it up this way. She says, the critics of forgiveness, uh, both right and left, seem broadly to hold that the practice of forgiveness is or can be injurious itself, both to the person who was wronged and has the option to forgive, who in so doing may declare their own lack of self-respect or relinquish rightful anger and invite further offenses against themselves and similar members of society. That's sort of the, usually the more sort of liberal critique that forgiveness lets people off the, you know, allows injustice to continue. Uh, but it's also injurious to the person who has done wrong and stands to be forgiven, who in so doing would risk being held less than morally accountable for their actions and thus less than equal, and who might also deduce from their encounter with forgiveness that morally wrong actions are consequence-free and all but condoned by society. That would be the more, uh, I guess, conservative critique of forgiveness. Um, I think she cuts to a very interesting ending. She says, the most important thing about forgiveness is that it recommends not so much a specific kind of practice as a specific kind of person, a forgiving kind. It isn't so much that every case of wrongdoing ought to be forgiven on the same terms or in the same way, as much as every case ought to be viewed with a forgiving eye, approached with an openness to that transformation in sentiments. Forgiveness is hard. It is not a magic process that redresses all wrongs, nor is it necessarily a short and straightforward process, but in my view, it's a process that unites wronged and wrongdoer in a plan of peace. And since we've all been on both sides of that equation hoping for the same thing, it seems a most useful virtue. I'm constantly uh, in, confronted with people wanting exceptions to forgiveness those people deserve only the law and these people deserve only the gospel. And I think that the Christian voice, as I see it, is to uphold the beauty and ideal of forgiveness no matter what, whether it's under attack from the left or from the right. But not only the ideal of forgiveness, but God as the great forgiver that where we cannot, I think forgiveness is a miracle. We've, we've talked about it many times. Um, but I, I've noticed like a, a shirking back from forgiveness because people are afraid that you're condoning either systemic justice or moral reprehensibility. Um, and I just, like, I'm with Dolly Parton on the sort of forgiveness. It's kind of everything at the end of the day. Um, and if we don't have that, as, as certainly as a Christian church, that we don't lead with that, then I just don't know what what we have to contribute to the to the discourse. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, when Tolling Trevigen spoke at the Mockingbird Conference in Houston, and he said if you ask the average person on the street what they thought Christianity was, they might say like you know, all any number of things, judgmental or or maybe they say something positive. 
but that really it's forgiveness. And, you know, I will say, I don't spend a lot of time talking about money with my students, but I spend a lot of time talking about forgiveness. Um, because I think that's a huge, that it just makes us different, right. Than, than other people, or it should make us different from other people. And, you know, unfortunately, because I think politics has become so enmeshed with Christianity on a national scale and because politics has become so unforgiving, I think people have forgotten that that is like the core tenet of actually who we are to be Christian is to know you are forgiven, which means that to be Christian means that you forgive like that is that is what makes us different and yes there's all these reasons and the cross and yet but that is like that for me is like the defining thing in christianity that makes it it just makes us different you know so so like an example i don't know if i've talked about this before but um last year there's a ministry on campus with us that is uh really conservative and um has had some you know, some incidences with uh, kids who are from the LGBT community or women, uh, female students, and in terms of, you know, shaming them or not letting them be a part of stuff. And this newspaper article went up in the, the Rice newspaper that was like kind of tearing this ministry apart. And it was telling stories that people had experienced in this ministry and it was rough. And I was sitting with my students for the lunch and they were like, oh man, like good riddance, you know, like it was like, <laughs> I mean, we, we got to feel so progressively self-righteous in that moment. You know what I mean? Like so self-righteous and it was so tempting to go there with them, but I've watched just enough Ted Lasso, uh, that I was like, all I could think about, I know the guy who runs it. And he's like really sweet and like he has a family. And I was suddenly like, is his job on the line? Like, this is really scary, you know? And, and also this has been a ministry that's fed a lot of our students and that they, they feel a home there. And so, you know, and so what does that mean for the future of this ministry? And, you know, that, that is a very specific time when I was like, Hey, we're not, we're, I'm going to reach out to the guy who runs this ministry. I'm going to make sure they're okay. We're going to pray for them. Like, I understand that they have caused hurt, but we don't want to see scorched earth. I promise you, mm-hmm. as much as we think we want to see scorched earth, we don't want to see it. I promise you, you know? I just don't see how anyone who thinks forgiveness is a bad thing ever hopes to have a relationship with another human being or yeah. has ever had a relationship with yeah. another human being. Because how many <laughs> how many parents don't deserve to be forgiven? How many kids don't deserve to be forgiven? How many spouses don't deserve to be forgiven? If you're going to hold everyone accountable you're going to be very, very lonely very quickly and also just really unhappy yeah. because you won't be able to forgive yourself for all the stupid stuff that you do and say that you wish you hadn't. And no amount of accountability is going to melt your frozen heart. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Uh, it's just like I don't see how relationship is possible without forgiveness. Um, and yet at the same time, the, the reality is we live in an increasingly isolated and lonely world where we're either um, getting on social media and anonymously criticizing ourselves or uh, driving along in our cars and anonymously flipping each other off, yeah. <laughs> you know, in our little bubbles of security. Yeah. Um, but if you're actually engaging in a relationship with anybody else or attempting to do that, you're very quickly going to bump up against people who say things that you're like, what did you just say? Yeah. 
what did you just do? And in that moment, you either like let it go or you hold them accountable, you know? And, and there are moments for holding, there are moments for that. There are moments for like enough is enough. But most of the time, it's like... Um, There's a lot less of just, them than people think. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> a lot Like a less. solid 13% yes. of them at most. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. you're not holding... Yeah. I don't know. I just... I totally agree, RJ. Like, the worst thing you the can have in marriage... prophetically are like, few and far between. <laughs> the opposite of a healthy marriage, the worst thing you can have in marriage is accountability. Well, worst I think, I think the prophetic the, word that we have to people, to the world, is you are forgiven. Like, that's yeah. the actual... You are forgiven. That's right. I, yeah. I think Nadia Bolz Weber yeah. said that. If, if someone says God has a word for you and they don't say... If the next words out of the, your, their mouth aren't your sins are forgiven, like, mm. you should... You should you should question what it is they're yeah. saying to you because they're usually trying to exert some sort of control or yeah. further the uh, the dynamics that um, create road rage. <laughs> you know? One of the ladies in the women's Bible study here, who's a little bit older than me, she the other day was said she said, "Have you, any of you guys ever heard of a ever done a lemon squeeze before? A lemon squeeze? We're like what's a lemon squeeze?" She's like, "It's where you know when we were younger and we'd get together in a circle and we each tell take turns telling each other what we didn't like about each other." And we were like, what? Lemon Have you guys ever heard of that before? I was like, that's the worst thing I've ever heard of. I was like, talk about a way I'm pretty to pretty sure they do that in like, that's like a, from Nexium. <laughs> she wasn't advocating it. I guess it was just something that she did when she was younger. It sounds like, like a, like like a sorority thing a little bit. Exactly. You know? That's probably what it was. Like, yeah, now yeah, it's time, girls. I'm like, no. Now the truth comes out. I'm the only brunette. Yeah. Say I know. Me. It's like the beginning of Dazed and Confused <laughs> with those girls rushing. And that's what I always think about. <laughs> Um, well, let's end oh by gosh. talking about Easter. And RJ, I want to hear what you preached. But Sarah, I'm going to read what you wrote that we published on the Mockingbird website. This was actually in the Daily Grace devotional, and I know it uh, spoke very powerfully to people. It's called The Light Has Come to Stay. It was a devotion on John uh, chapter 20, verse 17 through 18. And you wrote, There's a local legend of a preacher in Jackson, Mississippi. He stood up to offer a word on Easter Sunday, simply leaned into the mic and said, It's all true then sat down. Mm. I've heard people tell this story two ways. Some people talk about that minister like he was a lazy so-and-so with little regard for the pageantry of Easter. Such a day demands a well-thought-out sermon befitting the hats, lilies, and plastic eggs. And then there are the people in the other camp, those of us who are mystified that someone would so boldly say such a simple thing and let the gospel speak for itself. This is exactly what I need to hear on Easter morning. I need to hear that it is actually all true, that Jesus came to rescue me, that he came to die in my place, that my sins are forgiven. Such news hits an almost unreachable spot in my heart, but Jesus manages to find it. Resurrection rips through all those intellectual questions that I want to throw at. Do I have to be forgiven? Can't I just forgive myself? Why do I have to forgive others? All of those questions are just my heart's feeble barrier to keep me feeling like I have some say in the matter. Jesus rising from the dead burns that old fence right down. I love Mary Magdalene in this moment. She is like an Olympian with a torch running to light the next fire, racing to tell everyone this one simple thing. The light has come to stay, to love us, to die for us, to save us from ourselves. Friends, it is all true. I mean, that... Gosh, Dang, Sarah, I don't remember, remember when writing you... <laughs> that at all? I do remember that story, but I don't remember writing that at all. I love. I mean, I I will say I've preached about that before 
in a different context. And people came up to me and said, we were sitting in, in Texas, I preach about that. We were sitting in that congregation in Mississippi when it happened. I think it was such an earth shattering moment that it's like, it, it, it is like echoed in so many different ways, mm. right? Because it, it, it was such a bold thing to do. I mean, imagine this past Sunday, the, the preacher getting up and saying that, like, you know, Josh and I always have these conversations about, oh, it's Easter Sunday. There's a lot of visitors. It's going to be a lot of communion. Kids are hopped up on candy. Like, doesn't need to be a long sermon, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that's always the conversation. But, like, this is so bold to just say it's all true. Like, every last bit of it. And then sit down. I just, you know, there's a reason why this story still lives on. Mm. But you also, you're, 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 what you're saying about it, the resurrection sort of burning down all of our intellectual uh, defenses um, yeah. in, is such a hopeful word to, to, to me. And that that's... It's hopeful to me, Dave. I have no idea who wrote that piece, but I don't remember it. Yeah, so but I'm all the mechanics of forgiveness, you basically, <laughs> no, all the mechanics of forgiveness that we've just spent the time discussing, which are yeah. interesting and fascinating and important, basically the resurrection kind of just says it doesn't really even matter how, but you, Jesus Christ is risen today. You are forgiven. Like, uh, I think it was, uh, St. John, uh, Christostom who has an Easter sermon that's called forgiveness has risen from the tomb. Let, Let none lament his failings. Forgiveness has risen from the tomb. Let none fear death for the death of the savior has set us free. So good. RJ, what did you yeah. preach on Easter to all those beautiful people? I just talked about hope. I talked about how um, I asked everyone sort of why they were there, you know, why they'd shown up. And I said, my sense is that's something to do with hope, that life is difficult and hard and often painful. And we need to know that um, we're not alone, that there's more to this. And so I talked about how the resurrection um, means that there is a God, that he's on our side, that this life is not all there is, and that um, and that God actually is with us right now, um, and each and every day of our lives. Um, and I even I use that little um, seeker's prayer from John Stott, which I really like. You know, um, what is that? Where you know the prayer is basically, you know, God, if you're real, and I don't know if you are, and if you can hear me, and I don't know if you can, um, then I, uh, you know, I sort of gave people an opportunity to follow Jesus in a very gentle way, which people. Um, you know, received well, because I do think, yeah, I didn't, I didn't talk a lot about forgiveness. I talked a lot about that on Good Friday, but on Easter Sunday, I talked about just the hope we have of a, of the, of a God who is on our side, who is with us each and every day, and that there's more to life than what we see. That's Something awesome. like that. That's beautiful. Paul Walker here was talking, he was highlighting the fact that, you know, it was the, the f- very beginning of the very first day of the week, and um, when when mm. when Mary went to that tomb, and in a sense that the past is prologue, that everything that's passed to mm. up to this point is only sort of led to this point, and that that mm. and and kind of no matter where you are today, Easter morning because it's the it's the first thing that happens on the first day. Everything leading up to it is simply prologue. All the sadness, all the pain, all of the heartache, all of the sin, all of the things that need to be forgiven and the things that haven't been forgiven. It's all. Um, prologue to what to the the resurrection, which is the beginning, not the end of the story. It's the, actually the beginning of our story, and um, I thought that was tremendously hopeful. 
because so many of us are carrying mm. these huge burdens. Josh talked about, um, and it, of course it was such a foreshadowing to me, uh, but like how like, like the death is only the beginning and the end is only the beginning. And he preached beautifully about the Truman show, which was like so wonderful. Um, and a great example, but at the end, and I can always tell when, and Josh is a crier. Sorry, Josh, but you are. And I can always tell when it's coming. And I was like, Oh, and I knew immediately what he was going to say, which is we've had our own miracle of life in the face of death because as most everyone in the congregation knew, my parents died two and a half years ago. And then at 12.07, right, seven minutes into Easter, um, our nephew was born August. And um, it was such a powerful, beautiful, personal way to end the sermon, you know, that we had just been given this life, uh, actual life, um, in the face of so much loss. So, When do you get to meet August? In like a week, and he was five pounds. He's super tiny. Oh um, yeah, super tiny, but he's yeah. healthy, and we're so excited. And yeah, it just it really does feel miraculous to me that there's this new little little life out there. That's amen. We'll say a prayer for him in New York, which is coming up in a couple yeah. weeks. I cannot wait to see those who are coming. And I wish I'm sorry that it sold out, but um, uh, please do walk in if you're anywhere close by to uh, to New York, uh, Calvary St. George's on April 27th to the 29th. Uh, it's, we've got something very it's very special. And um, but Sarah, I'll be thinking of you with holding little August during that time. And thank you, RJ. I won't be thinking about you at all. But um, don't be thinking about me. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm sh- I'm sure Not it'll be going it. great wherever you are. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Strength to strength. Um, well, thank you guys. Happy Easter to both of you, and uh, thanks for talking today. Happy Easter. You too, Dave. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Oh